This is the SLB Podcast, where we talk about ELT, SLA, and other things that enthrall and infuriate us. I'm Neil McMillan, President of the SLB Cooperative. And in episode 13, I'll be speaking to Jeff Jordan about task-based language teaching with excerpts from our discussion with renowned TBLT expert, Peter Skeen. Welcome to this episode of the SLB podcast, where we have our annual plug of our TBLT course, TBLT From Theory to Practice, which is a course looking at task-based language teaching, and it's aimed at teachers and course designers, and basically we take you through the steps for uh, understanding what TBLT is and putting together a TBLT program based on a needs analysis. And we are very fortunate, as before, to have some excellent guest contributors, excellent guest contributors, I should say, from the TBLT field. Uh, Mike Long sadly passed away this year, as you probably know, but we still have uh, recordings of Mike that he very kindly contributed to our course. Uh, In addition to Mike, we've got Roger Gilabert, a needs analysis expert from the University of Barcelona, Marta gonzalez Lloret from the University of Hawaii. She's a real force in terms of how we look at uh, technology and tasks together. We have Rose Bard, a Brazilian educator who uses uh, Minecraft with uh, children and uses a kind of task-based syllabus through the Minecraft game. And we have Liliana Havran, who uh, works in the library of a, a school for aviation. Right, Jeff? Yes, she works in um, Belgrade, and um, she's part of a school that gives English classes, among other things, to pilots and to uh, air traffic control officers. So she did our course. Uh, she was already interested in TBLT. She did our course. And then during the course, she started developing a TBLT uh, module especially for air traffic controllers and pilots. And she's since uh, developed it more and more, and she's going to come on our course and tell us uh, how she's getting on, what problems she's faced, and um, how she's adapting Mike's TBLT to her particular context. Excellent. Another important addition, who we're going to discuss in more detail here, is we have some contributions from Peter Skeen. And... Well, maybe you can introduce uh, Peter. I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with the name because like Mike, for many years, he's been involved in the research of tasks. Jeff, how would you sum up Peter's contribution to to task-based language teaching? He got the uh, ILBLT Distinguished Achievement Award in 2017 with Mike Long. They were both uh, jointly awarded this honour. And as you say, he's been involved in TBLT for a long time now. 
He started in uh, the 1970s. Uh, in 1980, he was part of the Institute of Education at London University, a very strong department that had Widdison, uh, Guy Cook, Peter Skeen himself, uh, John Norris, a very strong department there. And that's where he started his work on looking at the effects of different conditions and uh, different uh, formats on students' performance in tasks. He's conducted over the last 30 years lots of research, often with Pamela Foster, and it focuses on how various factors affect the complexity, accuracy, and fluency of students' um, L2 production, mostly speaking, when performing tasks. It's, it's Pauline Foster, not Pamela, right? I'm sorry, it's Pauline, but you're quite <laughs> sorry, Pauline. So the two of them have done a lot of work in the last uh, 30 years into the effects of various types of conditions and characteristics of, of uh, pedagogic tasks and seeing how, when you you make changes in the, the, the nature of the task or the way the task is carried out, how that affects students' production in terms of their of the complexity, the accuracy, and the fluency of their production. Right. Um, so that's a lot of what uh, Peter Skian has been doing. It's not the only thing. He, he's very uh, well known for his first book, Individual Differences, uh, in L2 Learning, which was a very influential book in the 1980s. He's also very interested in motivation and in the kind of construct of language learning ability. Mm-hmm. So those are two other areas that he's very well known for. And if we could kind of sum up what Peter's theory of, of task complexity involves, we could say, I mean, it's been called the trade-off hypothesis, but I think he's keen to distance himself from that idea now. But is certainly limited attentional capacity, right? The idea is that if you have a task which focuses learners on on being more accurate, then there's a kind of cognitive trade-off that they'll they'll maybe be less fluent or or less complex in their output. Uh, Or if you tweak the task conditions to encourage more fluency, perhaps they'll lose a little bit of accuracy or complexity. Is that a fair summary? (laughs) Yes, it, it, it starts with his insistence that learners have a limited attentional resources, and that's mm-hmm. the LAC um, acronym. Peter's original hypothesis was that students will make a trade-off. So, for example, if their attention is on fluency, if they're just trying to get their words out, then the accuracy and complexity of what they're saying will suffer. On the other hand, if they're trying to be absolutely correct and not make any mistakes, this will slow them down. So that's the kind of trade-off that he thinks uh, is going on when learners uh, produce particularly spoken language. He got rid of the trade-off because it sounds like one of them has got to suffer. And he now says, in the right conditions, all three aspects of good fluent uh, production can, in fact, 
be improved together so one doesn't have to suffer necessarily uh, at the expense of the others. And what his, all his work in TBLT, he sees the central challenge of TBLT instruction being to discover how tasks and task conditions, the task characteristics and the task conditions can be manipulated to produce performance which maximizes complexity, accuracy, and fluency. But perhaps we should just mention now, he, he accepts now, in the last 15 years or so, there's been a lot of attention, as everybody knows, on lexical uh, chunks and prefabricated language and so on. And given the importance of that, Skian thinks that that is another important uh, part of looking at the production of the L2. So you don't just have complexity, accuracy and fluency, you add this uh, lexical dimension. And what's interesting for us as well and our course participants is that we very much follow um, Michael Long's version of TBLT. Uh, We use Mike's 2015 book, Second Language Acquisition and Task-Based Language Teaching as our core text. And we subscribe to the idea that TBLT should start with learners' needs. Pedagogic tasks should be designed based on target tasks that we identify in the needs analysis. And they should be sequenced from simple to complex in a, in a syllabus. Um, and it's very interesting to have Peter contributing because he differs from Mike in a number of aspects, although they both broadly, we can say, uh, would reject a synthetic syllabus based on bits of grammar or, or other bits of the language that you learn bit by bit. Both of them would reject that. Peter's not so conventional. Our participants will hear his interview in full, but what we want to do today is maybe just discuss a few of his points and play back some clips from our chat with Peter. First of all, I think he wanted to say that he felt the needs analysis idea of, of Mike's was, was fine for English for specific purposes, but maybe not ideal for uh, English for more general or nebulous purposes. And he felt that uh, perhaps ESP or English for specific purposes there is limited transferability that just because you learn to do a particular task, it uh, doesn't mean that you pick up skills that, that you can then apply in another, another situation. So that was yeah. one of his objections. And then I think what might be more interesting for us to talk about in the first clip, this is one we shared on social media, is that he takes issue with Mike's idea of focus on form to the extent that he feels it's not enough. So Mike's idea, as we know, one of his key ideas was the interaction hypothesis, the idea that we can develop our language through feedback, through interaction. So through negotiating for meaning, uh, learners can have their attention drawn to a new language or to structures that they could perhaps say better. And uh, the feedback that they get can then help them develop that language. Let's run a clip from Peter where he takes slight issue with that uh, idea. From my perspective, uh, interaction seems to me, uh, I'm sorry, feedback that you get through interaction seems to me a little underpowered for what it has to achieve. So (laughs) Mike seemed to believe that uh, feedback was all you needed. I've got nothing against feedback. Feedback is good, but I don't think it's enough. Um, and I don't think it's, it can be guaranteed. 
So um, I think there needs to be a little bit more than feedback to um, to stimulate and to foster, to support development. Okay, so what's this little bit more that he's talking about, Jeff? Uh, what more do the students need apart from the, the feedback they get from interacting with each other according to, to Skian? Yes, um, it needs a bit of unpacking this because it's very central to the differences between them. Essentially, what um, Peter's saying is that we need a post-task stage where teachers draw attention or, or pay explicit attention to gaps or problems that they've noticed while the students have been carrying out the task. Skian is very keen to point out that whatever bits of the language that are given explicit attention, whether they be bits of grammar or pronunciation or, or lexis, whatever they are, they come from students' attempts to carry out the task. So they're not predetermined as they are in a synthetic syllabus. You pick up on problems that you notice in the task, and then you give these special attention in a post-task uh, stage. What kind of special attention it is depends on the context and depends on lots of things, but um, you might go as far as to actually have a presentation, some sort of explanation of a particular point of grammar uh, led by the teacher and followed by some sort of controlled practice uh, and so on. So Skian says, Long puts all his faith in the power of recasts and feedback and essentially um, corrective feedback of one sort and another that is momentarily carried out so as not to too much interfere with the focus on meaning. So that the teacher uh, corrects and guides and scaffolds in an unobtrusive way during the task. Skian says that's all very fine, but it's not enough. What we need is more than that, more uh, explicit noticing. He's very keen on uh, Schmidt's idea of noticing. So he says we need this, um, this post-task phase, and that he follows uh, Jane Willis, of course. Let's just underline what you said, that this post-task uh, language focus shouldn't be to deal with some predetermined uh, language point. Let me just run another short clip where he clarifies that. It's crucial that what is chosen to be, what emerges as salient comes from the learner. That's something I find difficult to see with Mike's needs analysis approach, because in its way, that's a bit prescriptive as well. Um, and so here I'm looking for greater freedom within the task so that the learner wherever they are in their course of interlanguage development, might notice a gap uh, or might notice a problem. And if there is some sort of record, and of course, since all students now have cell phones with the record facility, <laughs> it's quite easy to have a record of what went on in the task without the teacher needing to be there. Um, that becomes the starting point 
for some work which goes on afterwards. Okay, so I think personally I can accept the idea that uh, perhaps, especially when you have bigger groups of students, um, there's no guarantee that students are getting enough feedback and an interaction um, to get the focus on form that, that Mike promotes. And that there could be some value uh, in this post-task work, especially if, as Peter suggests, it's coming from something which emerges during task performance. Student notices, for example, that they don't uh, control a certain aspect or they want to say something more, more complex than they normally do. Um, how they notice that, I'm not quite sure when they're not getting any feedback, perhaps, on an interaction. Um, but I don't quite get where um, Mike's basing his tasks on, on needs analysis doesn't also allow for that possibility. Uh, I think that's really one of the things that Mike argues for is that basing tasks on students' needs gives them a strong motivation for communicating. And through that, it allows their kind of internal syllabus to, to develop. We're not imposing a syllabus from outside. So I don't know where Peter gets the idea that somehow it's restricting students from noticing that gap. Well, what do you think? Yes, I think this is absolutely crucial and really uh, highlights the differences between them. Um, and it's a difference that um, uh, is sort of wider in that, for example, Ron Ellis and also Shintani and Lambert seem to kind of go along with Peter's way. And to those, of course, we should add Jane Willis and, and, and certainly the two Willises at times, but Jane Willis is probably more um, well known for this. So what Willis and Rod Ellis with his hybrid syllabus and Peter Skeen with, with his comments that we've just heard, all of them are taking a view of a syllabus that is uh, kind of general, not very specific, not very well laid out, um, and assumes that uh, during the syllabus tasks, that they're the activities part of the course. Now, Long has a totally different view. To him, the task is the syllabus. That's it. And so it's the, the identification of target task is absolutely central to the whole enterprise. If you're making a course, Mike says you have to start with target task. You have to find out what it is that cohort of people who are going to do the course need to do in the L2. And you don't do it, the teacher doesn't do it, and, and nor do applied linguists do all of it. Uh, domain experts uh, are, are crucially involved. So you identify these target tasks and then you, from them, you design pedagogic tasks where the pedagogic tasks move carefully from simple to complex, helping the learners to achieve uh, communicative competence and the ability to carry out those tasks. So Peter's quite wrong. He, does, he misunderstands when he says that Mike Long's course is too prescriptive. Well, of course it's prescriptive if, as Skian and Ellis and Willis seem to want to say, the syllabus is just an amorphous collection of stuff and that, that is 
um, comprises a certain amount of task activities, Mike's thing is deliberately much more carefully constructed so that the needs of the students are dealt with uh, practically by doing things in the language during the course. So I think there's a really important uh, thing opened up here, the difference between Long's approach to syllabus design and Skian. Skian uh, doesn't really care much about syllabus design. It's a kind of loose framework for for things that he decided to go on. And there is in the TBLT Theory and Practice book, a very good book, incidentally, which we'll um, we'll give a link to, there they make a lot of this distinction that was first made by Prabhu between two different kinds of uh, syllabus that um, they were called... um, Operative and uh, inspirational. Uh, sorry, illuminative. Illuminative, yeah. So they have these two ideas. A function of a syllabus is either to be illuminative or to be operative. And, of course, Skian and uh, Ellis and Willard go for the operative one. Uh, it's an operational thing where you just, uh, you know, you treat the syllabus as a sort of loose uh, bag where where you pull things out as you need them, whereas what uh, they somehow weirdly call the illuminative syllabus uh, is deliberately attempting to find out what people need and then find the best way of helping uh, the cohort to arrive uh, at their their identified goals. Mm. It's an interesting distinction. I mean, we would, of course... Having worked with participants in our course for the past uh, three years or so, we can probably understand why Mike's version of TBLT can, can appear to some extent a little bit prescriptive. It's very organized from the needs analysis. But I think we would uh, argue for uh, a loosening of that to a certain extent that you have to be open to, to, to students' needs as they emerge in the class, to things that they might want to work on. And you're not going to design your syllabus to exclude any kind of uh, more spontaneous, I suppose, process type approach to, to what's going on. So basing your, your syllabus on students' needs doesn't mean excluding everything else. The problem I have, I suppose, with not doing that is, is where did the tasks come from? And as you say, Peter didn't seem to attach very much importance to that. He mentioned the uh, task bank. Maybe I can just run, run a quick clip on on what he said about that. I think that um, he made the incredible observation that the tasks you should choose to use are the tasks which worked last year. Now, that sounds unhelpful and very limited, but there's some wisdom in that, I think. Um, to put this another way, Tasks that teachers use, and which I think could be surrounded by the positive conditions I've been talking about, um, are out there because loads and loads of tasks have been developed. So I think in some ways what teachers need to do is to make selections from banks of tasks. Now, when he said he, I think he's referring to Prabhu. So Prabhu says the best tasks are the tasks that worked last year. 
and um, he mentions Task Bank. Now, uh, we, of course, advocate the use of task banks, and he mentioned the International Association of TBLT's new website, which uh, is housing uh, tasks. But <laughs> quite a lot of the tasks they house, I think, were probably developed from needs analysis. So uh, I suppose the whole thing comes comes full circle. Um, but it's obvious that he's not really interested in syllabus design in the way that Mike was, and he attaches less importance to that and more importance to what goes on with the task and around the task. So that when he talks about task conditions, then he's talking about what you do beforehand and, as we mentioned before, what you do after. But maybe we can just come back to that uh, before we move on too much, the, the, the post-task, because as we said, Peter doesn't think there's enough opportunity in the interaction itself to get feedback to help you develop language. So we need a post-task language focus. And we asked them about research on that. Uh, what are the effects of working on this language post-task? And in fact, there hasn't been a lot. So maybe I can just run a clip on that. The lack of research, if you like, on the effects of uh, post-task language focus in terms of how it might help uptake of or improvement of, of language. It would be really good to see um, if that's the if that's effective, because from uh, an SLA point of view, an interlanguage uh, point of view, the sort that Jeff was articulating earlier, you've got hot language. This is your moment to work with that hot language. So yes, I would love to see research in that area. Now I think this is another key difference between Peter and Mike because. For Mike, by, by the time you get to a post-task, I think the language is no, is no longer hot. And one of his <laughs> arguments for focus on form, which is more immediate, responsive to needs as they arise in task, is that it's effective because it's it's what Thornbury calls, uh, is it language at the point of need or something like that? It, it it's, it's really hot because the learner's stumbling over something or they're trying to communicate something. They need a word or they need to be uh, need to make themselves clear to somebody else. And then the other interlocutor or the teacher can intervene in a short, sharp way and draw attention to that hot language, if you like. Whereas by post-task, is there a danger perhaps that it's no longer hot? And is it a danger that this post-task perhaps disintegrates into a kind of PPP in reverse? That's my concern, that you end up just doing your presentation and practice after the, the kind of productive phase rather than before. Yes, I quite agree. So, yeah, that's, that's one of the contentious things. One other interesting thing, which I think is more interesting, is that there has been, there has been research, hasn't there, uh, Jeff, into the effects that knowledge of a post-task phase might have on task performance. And uh, I'll run a quick clip on that, but basically... If students know that after the task has been done, they are perhaps going to have to transcribe what they said or maybe do a kind of public performance of it to the rest of the class or record it in some way um, to be broadcast, then this has an impact uh, on their accuracy, perhaps. Let me just run that clip. Knowing that there are consequences of the task that they're doing changes the way attention uh, is allocated to different areas. And if you know you're going to be confronted with the need to transcribe the stuff coming out of your, your mouth, uh, 
you tend to be more accurate and you even tend to be a bit more complex in certain circumstances. What do you think? This seems to be more promising. Um, rather than using a post task, perhaps to to pick the language apart and do do a more traditional kind of explicit bit of language teaching, just the knowledge that they're going to have to do something with the task afterwards or with uh, analyzing language could have a positive impact on, on their task performance. Yes, I, I think there's, <clears throat> as you say, there has been some studies on this. And yes, I think there's no doubt that uh, it does have an effect. See, all the time, what we have to sort of realize is that Peter Skian is really interested on uh, how tasks are affected by the characteristics of the task and by the conditions of the task. That's really what he's getting at. And that's why he doesn't really give too much attention to what the actual tasks are. Um, if you look at the three tasks he uses in all his um, research with um, Pauline Foster, they've been kind of fairly carelessly plucked out of textbooks. One is a personal information exchange, another is a narrative, uh, and another is a fairly standard decision-making task where subjects role-play a judge and they decide on the punishment. So this indicates, I think, that Peter Skian's not so interested in the task itself um, as um, what effects uh, are achieved by tweaking the conditions uh, and the characteristics of the task. Now, when we come to the conditions of the task, um, the uh, uh, knowledge by learners that something's going to happen as a result of what they do when they're performing the task um, it is said, and there's a lot of um, evidence to support it, that this will actually affect the way that they carry out the task. So if nobody's listening and they're off in a corner somewhere and three or four of them, uh, then they will be very much focused on meaning and they'll probably resort to sort of lexicographic uh, stuff and, and they won't push and they won't care much about accuracy and they'll probably do quite a bit of code switching and so on and so on whereas if they if they're filmed or if they're told after this one of you is going to do a presentation to the rest uh, and explain your decision that kind of aware of, of, of knowledge <laughs> that they're going to something that there's going to be a consequence of what they've done certainly does affect <clears throat> their their performance their production of the L2. And that's a, a, a very interesting uh, observation. And I think a lot of what uh, Peter's done is ex are extremely interesting from a pedagogic point of view. Um, the uh, conditions that he mostly focuses on is um, the effect of planning on uh, the performance of a task yeah. and the effect of a um, post-task analysis and follow-up. Right. As in terms of the uh, characteristics of the task, Robinson's got all sorts of, um, and there is in fact a taxonomy of different kinds of tasks, open, close, convert, and, and so on. Mm. Peter Skian concentrates on three. Uh, he says they um, tasks are essentially either familiar or unfamiliar, 
Um, mm-hmm. So you're dealing with stuff that you've got goods to come after about and so on or, or not. Um, they have a clear structure for the information required uh, or less clear. Yeah. Um, and also that they make demands and, uh, on um, simple or uh, more complex linguistic uh, complexity as well as cognitive complexity. So he said those are the three uh, characteristics. Either they're familiar or unfamiliar, they're clear structure or they're uh, more open, and, and they're either simple or, or complex in terms of their linguistic demands and their cognitive demands. Mm. And I think that helps too. So he's got these three quite clear task characteristics that he can uh, judge things by and he's got these fairly clear conditions for example are they going to be recorded and and expected to do something do they have preparation time Mm. do they have feedback um, before their public performance and so on Mm -hmm. so this is what's so good about peter that he 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 really clear structure of tasks without paying too much attention to the task itself and and by doing that he's able to do some research some studies that because they're carefully focused on one particular variable for example the effect of planning or the effect of the task being familiar mm. it's much easier for him just to to get good data and good reliable results which have been replicated quite a lot mm. uh, to show that this or that is affected right. and of course the other thing is is his his very wide use of these three uh, measurements of um, communicative competence which are fluency accuracy and, and, and complexity right and as you say the pedagogic implications are very very interesting and and i think it's from our point of view it's something that our course participants and anyone listening can easily try out. So let's see what happens if we give them five minutes planning time before they do this narrative task or whatever. Let them think about it first, see what happens. Let's yes. see what happens if we tell them they're going to be recorded later and they'll have to transcribe what they said. And I suppose the objective there is to try to lessen the, the focus on meaning and and push up the, the kind of focus on the form you want to take place in order to promote, I suppose, language development. And these are things that teachers can try out. And I think it's very good to know that there's some research behind that to support what we do in the classroom. The, the other side of it, though, is, is that it, it pushes more away from the, the kind of focus on implicit learning that, that Long uh, is so good at, uh, towards more explicit. And then from a pedagogical point of view, then I think that just tends to reinforce things that teachers already do that uh, perhaps are not as efficacious as they think they are, at least from our point of view. Now, one of the interesting questions that you asked them is what he thought about Nick Ellis. So we've mentioned already, I think, uh, Rod Ellis, uh, who writes about TBLT, Nick Ellis is a theorist of, of language acquisition that Mike was keen on and who has a great focus on implicit learning where explicit learning or this momentarily momentary kind of focus on form that Mike promoted is a kind of way of resetting the dial so that better implicit learning can take place later on. Now you asked Peter what he thought of that 
And well, the answer maybe wasn't that surprising, but let's listen to it. A problem that we have to deal with and that we haven't resolved remotely is, are we dealing with explicit or implicit learning? Yes. And Nick Ellis certainly goes down the implicit learning path. Yes. Um, that's fine. I have my doubts because it seems to me if you believe in a critical period and not a sensitive period, which I think on the whole I do, the question is then, if you follow Robert de Keyser, um, is most of the learning that goes on in classrooms a mixture? Yes. What's the balance? If you believe it's more explicit than implicit, then the Nick Ellis approach doesn't become so convincing. Right. If we come back to the world's classrooms, it does seem to me that you know Nick is articulating a viewpoint which makes the assumption there is colossal amounts of input. Well, if only, that's the problem. We don't have colossal amounts of input. So on the one hand, you don't have colossal amounts of input. On the other, you have learners for whom explicit learning is now seen as more efficient. It makes the position he's articulating true, but limited. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> I think this is a bit of a vicious circle, right? If, if there's not enough input in the classroom, then we're, by doing more explicit teaching, maybe in a post-task way, we're actually taking away from opportunities for more input. So, um, and also I'm just, I don't know what he means exactly when he says that uh, explicit learning is now seen as more efficient. I don't know if he means that from the student's point of view. Now, he's not here to defend himself, so we shouldn't. Uh, criticize too much and it would be lovely to get Peter to come back and discuss these questions in a in a podcast uh, as well but yeah isn't it isn't this the kind of the how can we say it the the vicious circle or the the circle that can't be squared we need more input um there's not enough input so we need to do some explicit teaching but the more explicit teaching we do the more chance we the more opportunities we take away for 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 rich input Yes, I think we're back to a, a fairly casual regard for syllabus design. He starts with Nick Ellis. Nick Ellis uh, takes a usage-based view of SLA. Well, first we should say this. Everybody, even Peter Skian, Mike Long, uh, Nick Ellis, uh, even Rod Ellis, um, agree that the best way to look at language learning, second language learning, is, is interlanguage development. So, and, and that we ought to respect um, the, what we know about that kind of development. It's not linear. It doesn't progress learning bit by bit and accumulating the bits and so on. So then, um, given that, then there is the big question of how much do you learn implicitly and how much do you learn explicitly? How much do you learn by doing things in the language and how much do you learn by being told about them and studying them uh, as an object? And the, the consensus is among, again, one that all the people I've mentioned would agree is that uh, the default mode for learning is implicit. Implicit uh, learning leads to procedural knowledge. 
it's not clear. He mentioned De Keyser, of course, who's, who's, who's a fan of explicit noise. Even De Keyser recognises that it, it, this is very limited, and it's not sure that explicit um, uh, declarative knowledge can actually become uh, procedural knowledge rather than just very speeded up, automatic um, declarative knowledge. In any case, the question of how much attention should be paid to explicit uh, grammar, to explicit teaching and explicit learning is obviously absolutely crucial. And I think the problem, as you quite rightly say with uh, Skian's account, is he says in order for implicit learning to work, and we know that implicit learning is the real way that it's done, there have to be massive inputs. And as you say, he then says, and that's why, that's why explicit learning is so popular. Now, the point, what they're trying, I think what they mean is, if you just, if you wait for people to implicitly learn it, they need six or seven exemplars to learn one bit of uh, vocabulary. They won't just, you tell them that uh, the, the English from Spanish meso is table, they won't get it. They have to see it in context eight times or whatever it is, the sort of stuff that Nation talks about. Therefore, since there's only six hours a week teaching time for English, the best thing to do is to tell them about the grammar because you haven't got time for them to pick it up for themselves. But that contradicts what we know about SLA, which is if you tell them about the grammar, they will not, from what you've told them and what they learn about explicit formal elements of the language, that will not lead to communicative confidence. They might be able to pass an exam, but uh, you know, which asks them questions about the language, but they won't be able to communicate, which is what most of them want to do. So it really makes no sense at all to say, because we've only got a limited time, we'll dedicate it to explicit teaching. It really, it's a contradiction, and it's a very popular one. The only thing that it relies on is that speeds up the process. Well, it is perfectly true that the only thing that teaching can do is, is affect the, the rate and not the root. That's true. But it isn't the case that telling people about the language in the way that most teachers do with the course will, will speed up their, their interlanguage development. It won't. So this is really, I think, the crux of the matter. How do we best help learners develop their interlanguage and the answer is by giving them ways of using the language and doing things in the language and then how do we tackle the problem which Skian mentions if there is a critical period or sensitive periods if that means adult learners are in some way you know damaged by their curiously enough by their first language then that's where we have to step in and give some help some scaffolding some feedback and so on Right. And that's what Long so, so Long says the important thing is to get the syllabus right. The important thing is to not talk about, you know, 
how many years would you give this guy for stealing his mother's savings? Uh, but rather, what do you need to do with the language? Let's design tasks that slowly build up your ability to do these things in the language. And by the way, this will need you to improve in uh, your knowledge, uh, uh, your ability to use the language, your ability, your, your understanding of the grammar, the syntax, the, the, and so on. Right. Uh, and incidentally, uh, McEllis says that, as you mentioned, the, the, the idea of the explicit teaching is to reset the dial. He says, McEllis, not Rodin, McEllis says in his emergentist view of SLA, what happens is there are certain parts of the L2 that the adult learner won't notice. They're not salient and, and, and the rest of it. So those are the bits that we need to pay attention to. And once the learner has paid specific attention to it, once once it's come into working memory and, and, and been noticed in, in, in uh, Schmidt's sense, that's enough for the learner to go back to the default way of learning, which is through implicit learning. In other words, more exemplars of that bit that the uh, student has noticed will then be implicitly uh, learned mm. by, by um, using the language and doing things in the language. Right. I think to sum up, I mean, I'm personally quite swayed by Peter's arguments about task conditions. I think it's very interesting. I think we need to pay attention to what we do before and after a task. But of course, I tend to agree with you about what, what the balance should be of time on task in a classroom compared to time talking about language. So I think while I would be quite happy to promote the idea of doing a bit of post-task language focus, especially, I think, where there are limited opportunities for the teacher to pay attention to student interactions. We're talking about teachers with big, massive groups, perhaps. And uh, we're talking about situations where you can't guarantee a lot of feedback to interaction, then it makes sense. But uh, it has to be carefully controlled that it doesn't descend into spending most of the class time then talking about language, because as you say, uh, it takes away from the opportunity for for input. The other thing, of course, is we've been very much focused on talking about oral interaction tasks. Now, I know Peter has done also research on written tasks, um, but maybe not so much. But I think it adds up to a picture that confuses people a lot, and it gives the impression that task-based language teaching is only about kind of spoken, collaborative, or interactive tasks. There are so many opportunities to be doing receptive tasks as well. It could be something students need. They need to be able to read things, watch things, uh, understand texts. And that's, these are huge opportunities for input and language development in that. And that maybe that's another episode where we can talk about this input elaboration and modification kind of idea. But I think that would be an interesting point to finish on, that uh, tasks are not just oral interaction tasks. Right, and, absolutely. Uh, by working on... I think maybe we should... Um say that how much we uh, enjoy talking to Peter, how valuable his work is, how much we in our doing these courses, the three courses we've already done, have appreciated the need to adapt 
TBLT to the yeah. people's context and yeah. that Peter's very helpful here right. um, and that all the stuff he does talking about, well, what's the best way if if uh, recasts and uh, corrective feedback isn't enough, what, what kind of supplements could you do? Right. Uh, all that stuff has been extremely valuable to us as we've, um, you know, kind of worked our way towards uh you know, a more adaptive, a, a more contextualized version of, of Mike Long's uh, TBLT. Right. And we keep evolving that and uh, it'll be no different this time, I, I, I would imagine. So uh, there's the pitch uh, coming to our course, starts <laughs> October 22nd. We'll be looking at what we believe is the, is the optimum kind of version of TBLT, uh, Mike Long's needs-based TBLT, but very open to uh, people like Peter and other views on TBLT, very much open to adapting to everyone's context. And through that, we, we endeavor to find uh, the best way of doing tasks uh, to suit people's uh, individual teaching contexts. So that's it. We'll put the link in the show notes. Come and have a look at our course and hope you can join us. And well, thanks very much, Jeff. It's been really interesting to talk to you about uh, Peter's work and I'm sure we'll get a chance to do so again in the future. A pleasure. I, I hope we see lots of people on the course. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast once again. To find out more about our TBLT course, please head over to learn.slb.coop with the precise link in the show notes alongside some more details about the work of Peter Skeen. So please check those out. Your support for our podcast is greatly appreciated and you can show that by subscribing to us or giving us a, a rating on your preferred podcast provider, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of the usual podcast providers. Until next time, thanks very much and cheerio.